Well, I want to start um, sharing, by sharing a verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 26. And, and so the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 26, he says this. He says, I suppose that this is good because of the present distress uh, it, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. And so it's kind of interesting, that, that verse there, but I've taken that verse, that verse was on my heart this week to, as a title for this message. So I've entitled this message, The Present Distress. Now, if you do a, an in-depth study of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you'll find out that commentators don't know what the present distress was that Paul was referring to. They're not exactly sure. They, they don't have a good idea. But whatever it was, we do know that it impacted Paul's instruction to the Corinthian church regarding marriage and singleness. That because of the present distress that they were going through there in Corinth, Paul says, I think that this is how you should do things. And so as I was thinking about this subject, I said, well, what, let's, let's look into Greek. What does this word present mean, this present distress? Well, it means near at hand. You know, when something's near at hand, it's close to you. For men, on a Sunday afternoon, what they want near at hand is the remote to the TV. <laughs> it's, if it's not near at hand, then there's trouble. We want that remote to be present. Well, what's the word distress? Well, the word distress means what you would think it means. It means an affliction, a hardship, a calamity. And so as we think about this, the present distress, though we may not know what the present distress was for Paul, what we do understand is that all of us are, are, are facing a present distress or distresses in our own life. We're all familiar with present distresses. Maybe you're facing a, a relational distress presently or a financial distress, or a medical distress, and, and the list can go on and on and on. We know that life in a fallen world is full of distresses. But the present distress that has drawn the attention of the world is the state of war currently going on between the nation of Israel and the terrorist organization Hamas. And it's, it's in the news, it's in our minds, it's in our you know, social media feeds, and so there's all kinds of stuff going on with this. And so, you know, different individuals in my different classes at school have asked my take on this situation. And so I've, I've looked up things online and I've thought about it and I've prayed about it. And, you know, they've asked my, my take on the present distress. And I just want to share what I believe are some biblical wisdom on the subject. Because that's my goal. That's my goal for this church. You know, our church is nearing 21 years old. And we've never strayed from this, this idea, this thought, this commitment to teaching the word of God verse by verse. And the reason why we wanted to do that is because we believe that God has communicated, revealed himself through his word. And so that if we want to live lives that honor him, glorify him, are in good relationship with him, then we would be obedient to his word. And so I want each of us to think biblically, not just on this subject, but on every subject. That's the heart behind all that we do, is how can we think biblically on every subject, and how can we submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit as he reveals truth to us? And so as with each and every study that I share, I'm asking you to be Bereans. You know, the, we, we read about the Bereans in the book of Acts. Paul had visited Thessalonica and had some issues there in Thessalonica. He'd moved on to Berea. And it said about how the Bereans were more fair-minded than the Thessalonians because, or Thessalonians, because whenever Paul taught, what they did is they listened, and then they compared what he taught to what they knew already from the scriptures. And so that's what Paul's saying. That's what Paul was always wanting, is just giving me a fair hearing, see if what I'm teaching you is truthful. And that's all I ever ask here. 
I'm not asking that you agree with everything that I share with you. What I'm asking is that you give me a fair hearing and then compare what I say with the rest of the scriptures to find out if what I'm telling you is the truth. Because you may disagree with my perspective and that's okay because the Bible is infallible but I'm not. I can have a wrong perspective, I can see things poorly, so it's incumbent upon you to study the scriptures, to know the scriptures, to say, okay, I agree with Steve here because I think he's telling the truth in the scriptures, but I don't agree with him because I think the scripture doesn't support what he's saying. That's what I'm asking you to do, and actually by teaching the word of God week after week after week, I'm preparing you to do that very thing. Now, I will not be addressing any of the politics of the issues involved, because politics is always downstream of the true heart of the matter. That's where we go wrong as believers. We think if we just change the political system, we'd fix things. But the political system is only a result of the things that are wrong in the heart. And so if we really want to affect change in this world, if we want to affect change in people's lives, hearts have to be changed. If hearts are changed, politics will be changed. But if we just try to fix the politics, then what's happened? We're doing the very things that the Pharisees did. The Pharisees thought, well, why don't we just you know, paint the outside of the tomb? Well, you're still full of dead man's bones. Well, why don't we just clean the outside of the cup? Well, the, the cup is still nasty inside. And so our heart, what we want to do is we want to address the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is always the same, a person's relationship with God. That's always the heart of the issue. The problem that we have as individuals, as fallen people, is there's areas of our lives that are out of, dis- out of fellowship with God. And so the issues that are going on in the Middle East are actually the manifestation of hearts that are against God. And so we wanna examine that, we wanna address that. Because my concern here is for what the scriptures say. I want to point you away from the news and back to the Bible. I want you to realize that the word of God has the answers for how we're to live. The, the, the cable news networks don't have the answers. Instagram influencers don't have the answers. YouTubers don't have the answers. The word of God has the answers. So this brings us to our first section. And for our first section, I want to uh, I'm ask you to turn to Genesis chapter three. But the first question I wanna ask is, what's the root of this conflict, of what's going on in the Middle East? And it's sin. Sin is the root of every conflict. Sin is the root of every conflict. So I wanna take you back to Genesis chapter three, if you would. We'll look at Genesis chapter three will be the first place that we cover. Now, you know, some of you have had me in Bible classes at MCA. Some of you have obviously been listening to me for a long time from here. But anyone who has any contact with me for an extended period of time knows I'm going to take them to Genesis chapter 3. Because what happens, if we can understand what's happening in really the first 11 chapters of the Bible, we can make sense of what's going on after but if we can't make sense of this, then what happens is we're not gonna understand why the world is the way that it is. Genesis three tells us why the world is the way that it is. It's not a surprise, though it's tragic what's happening in the Middle East, it's not a surprise. It's the same thing that's been happening over and over and over and over again all throughout human history, because all throughout human history, man has refused to surrender to his God. Man is in rebellion against God, and this is where we end up. So Genesis chapter three, we're gonna look at verses one through eight, and we're gonna see how sin is at the root of every conflict. So first verse we have, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, 
which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Okay, first thing we want to address is, well, who's the serpent? So we as Christians immediately jump in and say that it's the devil, it's Satan. And we're right, but the interesting thing is we're not told in this verse that it's the devil. Is there a verse that tells us that this is the devil? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. And I'll tell you what that verse is. You can write it down in your notes. It's Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 says this. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Super helpful verse. Revelation 12, 9 tells us that the, that the great dragon of Revelation is also the serpent of old from Genesis. He's also devil and Satan and he's a deceiver of the whole world. Very, very helpful for us. It's a helpful verse to help us make sense and understand these things. So that's what we have. So here's the conflict. We have a conflict between the infinite God and a fallen angel that we often refer to as Satan or the devil. And he is going to bring sin into the world. And he's, this is how he's going to do it. He has a three-step system. This three-step system has not changed. In the thousands of years that have passed since our first parents fell, this is still what he does. So you want to find any kind of heresy, understand how that heresy came to be, then you're going to see that it was this three-step system. If you want to see people that are in conflict and disobedience, they, they follow this. And so I want you to take note of it. Step number one is he's going to question God's word. We find this in verse one. Notice what he says to the woman. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? That's a step one. Satan will cause you to question God's word. And isn't that what we see even in our, in our own world, in our own lives, in our own nation? The, the nonsense that's taking place is because, well, has God really said? Can we really trust the Bible? And, and that's where it begins. It's, it's a questioning of God's word. And then look now what happens in verses two through four. We're gonna see the denying of God's word. Verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, you may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And then here's the denial, verse four. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Okay, this is always how it is. So, so please hear me, please listen. Starts with a questioning. You know, this Bible really trustworthy? I mean, I think how can we know? And you know, and it's that kind of the, the doubt is planted. And then it comes to an outright denial. You won't die. The consequences aren't there. If you commit the sexual morality, it's going to be fine. Hey, if you go out and get drunk and get behind the wheel of a car, it'll be okay. Right? It's a denial of these things. So it starts with a questioning. It starts off soft, and then it goes a little harder with the denial of God's word. And then, you know, for a lot of us, we say, okay, no, I, b I believe God's word, and, and I won't get the denial. But, but you know what? It, it doesn't always go in this order. Right, Because some of us who believe God's word, who do not deny God's word, this verse 5 will get us. Notice what he does in verse 5. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Please understand in verse 5, what Satan is doing is he's questioning God's goodness. God's not really for you. 
God doesn't really want the best for you. If, if God wanted the best for you, if God really loved you, if God really had your best interests in mind, then here's what happened. He'd let you do whatever you want. He'd let you eat of any tree you wanted. And this is how Satan can work in our lives. Again, well, you know, if God really loved you, you wouldn't be struggling with this disease. If God really loved you, then you, your, your situation at work would be different. If God really loved you. And so all these things happen, and here's inevitably what, what takes place. When a human submits to this, questions God's word, denies God's word, questions God's goodness, you take matters into your own hands. That's always what it is, right? Because what's the mantra of every fallen human being? I gotta look out for number one. I gotta look out for myself. If I don't take care of myself, no one's gonna take care of me. And so what happens if, if I begin to question God's word, I begin to deny, deny God's word, and I question God's goodness, which it can also work in reverse order, right? Because if you start questioning God's goodness, then you'll start questioning God's word, and you'll start denying God's word. So what will happen is you take matters into your own hands, and that's what she does. It says, and the woman saw, here it is, that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. What's so interesting about verse four is we have three aspects, good for food, pleasant to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. In 1 John, John tells us what these are. He tells us that it's, it's the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And what's also very interesting is Jesus, since he was to succeed where Adam fell in Matthew chapter four, when he was tempted by Satan, he was tempted along these same three lines. Take the stones and make them be- bread, lust of the flesh. Hey, I'll, I'll take you off the temple and, th- and you can jump off and it'll save you. That's the pride of life. And then I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. That's the lust of the eyes, okay? So we have these things here and it's, it's the same story, but somehow we get tricked And we say, oh, what's happening now is something new. It's something different. No, this is the story of human history. This is a story of what happens when people fail to obey the word of God, when they fail to submit themselves to it. Verse seven, it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. So here we see the conflict, right? Adam and Eve were fine. They were naked and not ashamed. They were getting along well together. But once they sinned, there was conflict. They're embarrassed in front of each other. That their marriage is not what it used to be. And so because they're embarrassed, they have to hide themselves from each other. So the conflict that we have in this world with each other is because we're not right with God, and so now we're not right with each other. But it doesn't stop there, of course. We look here in verses. Um, verses eight, it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So of course that conflict extends to God. So now, as we give ourselves over to sin, that we're not in, you know, we, we don't want to be around God. We want to be far from God. We want to hide away from God. We want to avoid fellowship with him. So this is, please understand, this story is the story of today. This story is the story of of human lives. That's why things are going the way that they are, is because people are not right with God. Now, we're not gonna go through it, but Genesis chapter four, you know the story. What happens is Cain murders Abel. Abel gives a sacrifice that God honors. Cain doesn't. God speaks to Cain directly. And he says, hey, 
if you do the right thing, won't you be accepted? Won't I accept what you? But Cain doesn't want to do the right thing. He wants to live life on his terms. He wants to do what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, and he can't stand that Abel is a witness to the right thing, so he kills Abel to get him out of the way. And so it's important for us to understand, this is life on planet Earth. If you want to talk about the good old days, they were Genesis 1 and 2. Those are the good old days. Ever since Genesis 3, sin has been a part of this fallen world. In fact, we move on to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Let me read it for you. Shortly before the flood, this is what the Lord said, or this is what the Lord saw. It says, And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man is wicked. And then he floods the earth. There's only Noah and his family left. And then afterwards, though that they were people who obeyed God, we know pretty quickly they go in the wrong direction. Right? And, and so God says it's not that man has gotten any better now, but I'm, I'm not going to flood him because I've got a purpose. I've got a plan. I'm going somewhere with this whole thing. So this is important for us to understand. This has to understand that, that the present distress that we find ourselves in, the present distress of this fallen world, okay, is an extension of this same old story over and over again because people still refuse to believe. So please don't be deceived. It's not about money. You know, if, if only people had more money and more space, they'd do the right thing. There are plenty of rich people that do the wrong thing. It's, it's not a function of these things. And so as long as we think it's something about the physical aspects that's causing this, we've missed the point. Sin is the conflict. Sin is the reason why there's conflict. All right, let's move into our second section. And this is a reminder that sin enslaves people. So sin's the root of every conflict, but that also sin enslaves people. So would you turn to John chapter 8 for just a moment? Or I'm lying to you, more than a moment. Uh, let's turn to John chapter 8. Look at verses 31 through 47. So as we pick up the story here in John chapter 8, Jesus is in the midst of his, his public ministry, okay, and, he, and he's speaking to some religious leaders here, there, and uh, um, yeah, I, I believe it's in Jerusalem. And so he's speaking to these religious leaders, okay, and so he's, gonna, he's going to combat their thinking, right? So this is important for us, because we may have kind of this system of thinking that we've had for a long time that's not biblical. But because we're Christians and we have this, this system of thinking, we say, well, it must be fine. We need to allow the, the word of God to transform our minds, to renew our minds, to help us to see things clearly. So let's pick up the story, John chapter eight, verse 31. It says, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, okay, and that's important, we're gonna see in context that this believing is really like a surface level belief, Okay, that's, it's, not, it's not a heart-level belief. It's kind of a, a going with him for now. Because right? we're going to see in just a minute, they're not true believers. It says, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Incredibly important that a true disciple continues to abide in God's word. Right? Now, it's not that we're not going to have some up and downs. We're going to have some up and downs. A true Christian can backslide, all those kind of things. But the, what I always love to bring out to my students at school is I say, you know, the Christian life should look like a stock that's going up. You guys have all seen the charts, right, of like what a stock looks like, that over time it's going up. It doesn't, it's not a linear progression. It's not just straight up. There's ups and downs. 
But that's how our lives should look like as Christians. That's how our abiding should look. It's going steadily upward, but there's some pockets along the way. There's some areas where it's going up and down. So notice what happens, though. A, a disciple who stays in Jesus' word, then they're going to know the truth, and that truth will give them freedom. What is it that people say they want in this world? Oh, they want freedom. I want to be free. But they actually, they want freedom according to their standards, but that's the same freedom that Eve wanted, Right? Eve wanted the freedom to take this fruit and the freedom to not have consequences and that's not how this works. True freedom comes in surrendering to Jesus Christ. And so please hear me that as long as people refuse to surrender to Jesus Christ, there is gonna be war and murder and rape and kidnapping and burnings in this world. That's, that's the reality. Because people say, I want freedom on my terms. I want to be free to do what I want to do. They didn't make this world. This is not their world. This is God's world. And he set it up in such a way that that if, if you want to have a true life, a free life in the biblical sense, in the godly sense, in the actual, you know, reality sense, you have to surrender to him. So anyone who doesn't, then what's gonna happen is they're gonna have bondage. And they may call it freedom, but it's not. And so what we have here is these people, Jesus, Jesus sharing this truth with them. Now notice what they say in verse 33. This is one of the most um, just head-scratching verses in all the Bible. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? You don't have to be an Old Testament scholar to understand that the Israelites had been in bondage numerous times. They had been in bondage to the Egyptians. They had been in bondage to the Assyrians. They had been in bondage to the Babylonians. They had been in bondage to the Persians. They had been bondage to the the Greeks. And they were currently being occupied by Rome. So it makes no sense. So please understand, people who are enslaved by sin, who are deceived by sin, have no realization of it. Right? They just don't understand it. Their, Their eyes are blinded to it. And so they're like telling Jesus, how can you tell us we're gonna be made free because we've never been in bondage? And so Jesus is gonna get to the heart of the the matter. Jesus is gonna get to the ultimate bondage that they're experiencing. Please look at verse 34. That So these people, they're in bondage to sin and to Satan. They're blind to their current reality. Verse 34, Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. If you and I, as believers, can understand this, can believe this, the world is gonna make sense to us. It's gonna make sense why things are the way that they are. And so what Jesus is saying is, a person who's given themselves over to sin, to disobedience to God, they're enslaved by that. And you see that, right? A a person who's given themselves over to drunkenness, they can't be happy unless they're drunk. They're a slave to that. A person who's given themselves over to sexual immorality, they, they, they can't be happy unless they commit that sexual immorality. They're slave to it. And so that's what Jesus is saying. And so, but notice verse 35, he's talking about judgment, He said, a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. In other words, those who remain slaves of sin, those who refuse to follow Jesus Christ, the day is coming where they're gonna be taken out of the house. The day is coming when they're gonna be judged. But a son 
Someone who's abiding in God's word, who's submitted to the mastery of Jesus Christ, then what's gonna happen? They're gonna abide forever. And so look at the offer Jesus makes in verse 34. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. He's offering freedom. Isn't it interesting how Satan's twisted it? Satan says, if you become a believer, you're gonna be in bondage. If you become a believer, you'll never have any fun, you won't have any joy. When in reality, the unbeliever is in bondage. The unbeliever is a slave to sin. The unbeliever is a slave to wickedness. And Jesus says, if you'll just surrender to me, I'm gonna give you freedom. I'm gonna give you life. I'm gonna give you purpose. I'm gonna give you hope. I'm going to give you eternity in loving fellowship with me. That's what he offers. And so what I want you to take to heart is that only Jesus can set people free. Some new political law, some new United Nations mandate, some new whatever is not gonna set anyone free. Okay, and here's the deal. You can't set anyone free. I can't set anyone free. Jesus Christ is the only way, he's the only person who can set someone free. And that's vitally important for us to remember because for us, we may kind of get caught up and we see someone in our life and they're in bondage to sin and if only I just did enough and only if I prayed the right prayer and if only I did this kind of thing. We have to realize that yes, we should pray with, for them, we should witness to them, we should love them, but ultimately it's between them and the Son. Every person must come to the Son to be set free. And, and what Jesus is clearly saying here is that everyone outside of Christ is in bondage to sin. Everyone. Everyone who is currently outside of Christ is in bondage to sin. Doesn't matter how nice they look, doesn't matter about any of these things, if they have not surrendered to Jesus Christ, they are currently in bondage to sin. Verses 37 and 38. Now, Jesus is gonna get pretty spicy here, so get ready. He says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Now, this is radical. Jesus says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants. And what he means is, he says, I know that you're physically descended from Abraham, okay, I'm not, I'm, that you have the bloodline, but here's the deal, you're not walking rightly, okay? It, it, so, so he's basically saying, don't trust in your physical genetics, that's not enough, He says, you seek to kill me because you won't receive my word. And he says, it's ultimately because we have different fathers. So notice what Jesus is doing. They're trusting that Abraham is their father. But that's physical. But notice what Jesus is doing. Jesus is going spiritual on them. Because the problem is never physical. The problem is spiritual. He says, my father, and he's referring to God the father, okay? He's he's who I'm listening to. He's who I'm serving but you're actually serving your father. He's talking about their spiritual father. He's not talking about Abraham. And and so notice what they say in verse 39. They're missing the point, okay? In verse 39, they say, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to him, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Now please notice, look in verse 37. Verse 37, it says Abraham's descendants And then in verse 39, it says Abraham's children. Two different Greek words, okay? So here's what he's saying. He's saying you're you're physical descendants of Abraham, but you're not really his children. Because a physical descendant is just someone who shares genetics with them. A child is someone who imitates their father. 
That's how Jesus is using these terms. And this is very, very, very important. Um, it's that he's saying that there's a distinction here. And this distinction goes beyond these Jewish religious leaders. It goes to all people that you can only have one, or two, one of two spiritual fathers. Now notice he says, he says, if you were Abraham's children, in other words, if you were like his true spiritual descendants, you would do the works of Abraham. Abraham was a man of faith. Right, He had faith in God and God accounted it to him for righteousness. Verse 40, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. So he's again alluding to who their father is, not, not coming out and saying who their spiritual father is just yet, but he's basically making it clear to them, you guys are depending on Abraham. You're saying you're Abraham's descendants. You're not doing what Abraham did. Because Abraham was a man who had faith, these aren't. And then notice verse 41, they insult Jesus. They said to him, we are not born of fornication, we have one father, God. They're questioning Jesus' parentage. They're, they heard the rumors about you know, the virgin birth and this kind of thing. And, and so they're basically saying, hey, you were conceived out of wedlock. That's their heart toward him. But then notice what Jesus says there in, in verse 42, okay, Uh, Verse 42, he says, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. This is very important, okay? There's an important distinction we understand. All human beings are created by God. All human beings are created by God, but not all are children of God. All are created by God, but not all are children of God. You see, we come into this world as creations of God, but we don't become children of God until we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And then and only then are we adopted into the family of God. That is of vital, vital importance. It's true for every person. So he says, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. In other words, Jesus says, this is clear, if you are a child of God, you'll listen to Jesus. You'll hear Jesus. You'll receive Jesus. And, but verse 44, and here's where it gets really radical. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. Notice, for he is the liar and the father of it. How was, how was Satan a liar and a murderer from the beginning? Well, we already saw that in Genesis 3. Right? He lied about what was going to happen to them, and he murdered them. <laughs> Right? By causing them to take this upon themselves, murder their relationship with God, murder their relationship with others, cause them to start having the physical, um, you know, destructive influence of, of death in their life. So this is a radical thing Jesus is saying, but, but we often miss this because it's too hard of a saying that there's only two spiritual fathers. Either God is your father or the devil's your father. There's no in between. And, and so, you know, nobody wants to go to the hospital and see a new baby and say, oh, oh, what? look at this, a child of the devil. <laughs> right? Please don't say that. But that's a spiritual reality, right? That we all come into this world, fallen creatures, separated from God, and that we have to place our faith in Jesus Christ as he leads us by his Holy Spirit so that we would transfer our allegiance, we'd be brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. That's the reality. 
But if we miss this reality, if we say, well, that's a hard truth, and I don't really want to think about this, and I want to think about human beings differently than what happens, we won't understand what's going on in this world. Because we've avoided the truth. It's just like, a, you know, when, when, when I was in second grade, I had a really hard time memorizing my times tables, my multiplication tables. I had a hard time, and I didn't want to do it, but I went ahead and finished doing it so that I could actually do some multiplication later on, so I could do some higher math later on. Same thing for us. If these fundamental truths of the scriptures, if we avoid them, then what's going to happen is we're not going to be able to make sense of what's going on later. So it's very, very important for us to, to come to grips with this, that there's only two choices, that either the devil is your father or God is your father. Now think about the difference. The devil is a liar and a murderer. God is the truth and he gives life. Well, who do I want my father to be? You, weren't, you and I weren't able to, ch to choose our physical fathers, but we can choose our spiritual father. And that's an incredible privilege that God gives to us. Jesus continues there in verse 45. He says, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. That's so wild. Because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. In other words, if, if he had told a lie, they would have believed him. If he would have told them what they wanted to hear, they would have believed him. But because he's telling them the truth, they refuse to believe. And he says, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's word. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Radical, radical situation. And so we need to understand this reality that sin enslaves people, sin blinds people, but Jesus doesn't want it to be that way. Jesus wants it to, people to be set free. Think about it right now with all that's going on in Israel. If every person in Israel and the Gaza Strip and the West Bank tomorrow got up and say, I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus Christ, then all of a sudden, all of this that we've been talking about would be over. And that's not only true over there, that's been true in Midland, Texas. That's true in Odessa. That's true in any place on this planet. If every single person would surrender to Jesus Christ, we wouldn't have these issues. We wouldn't have these problems. We would have a completely different world. But as long as man says, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm going to call freedom what I want to call it, I'm going to do what I want to do, we're going to have this life. Jesus makes it clear in John chapter 10, verse 10. I'll read it for you. Jesus says this, the distinction. The thief, who I think he's referring to Satan, he says, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's what Satan wants to do. Steal, kill, and destroy. But this is what Jesus says. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So do I want to follow someone who wants to steal from me, kill me, destroy me, or do I want to follow someone who wants to give me life and have it more abundantly? Now, this whole idea was, was brought back to my mind. I was on junior trip uh, last May. And every time when we're going into New York City, on this bus, as we've been traveling around in the east, we, uh, in the northeast, we watched the National Geographic documentary about 9-11, okay, and, and just all the things that happened surrounding 9-11, and, and at the very end of that documentary, and if you haven't watched it, I would encourage you to watch it, they have uh, an audio clip from Osama bin Laden, and this is what Osama bin Laden says in that clip. He says, we love death. The U.S. loves life. That is the difference between us two. And, and so Osama bin Laden and, and people of his ilk, they're people who love death. They love destruction. They love to steal, to kill, and to destroy. 
But the U.S., for all of its faults and failures, has a Judeo-Christian base. And because of that, there's a culture of life. Now, we understand that that's on the wane. We understand that the way that the world is going, that's fading away. But that's really the distinction. The distinction is the devil loves death and God loves life. And so for us, if we want to do good in this world, we want to truly help people and help make a change and all kind of stuff, we need to be people who are all in with Jesus, who realize that he is the only solution to these problems. So this brings us to our third section of this study. It's, it's what should we do with the present distress? And let me start off by saying that depends. <laughs> that depends. If you have been following the Lord, then please keep following the Lord. If you have been following the Lord and then you've heard about what's going on there, then you know what? Your best thing you can do is keep following the Lord. Keep obeying the Lord. Keep loving your wife. Keep loving your family. Keep serving well at job. You just keep doing what you've been doing. But if if this has stirred you up now, you know, as what's going on in the world because you haven't been following the Lord, then my recommendation to you is to start following the Lord. If you see the things going on and you're wondering, I wonder if this is the end and is the end getting near and what's happening, all those kind of things, then let it be the spur to send you to the feet of Jesus. Let it cause you to trust in him. Start following the Lord now. But, but here's what I, w- I want to help you consider. Please understand that nothing has changed. No part of the Bible has been amended you have no new instructions. That, that's, that's where Christians kind of end up getting in a kind of a twisted up space. And this is, I, I'm enough a student of, of history to understand that this happens periodically. I mean, think about if you were a Christian living in World War II and you see all those nations gathering and you see different things, you probably would think, well, the end is near. And, and then if you know when there's the Cuban Missile Crisis, well, the end is near. And the Cold War, well, the end is near. And now, now, please, the end may be near. But the thing is, the, and this is my own personal philosophy, and you can take it or leave it, I realize that every day of my life could be the end. I realize that no matter what's happening in the world stage, today could be the day that God calls me home. So it's important for me, for, for my own mind, to live with that, that recognition. And I believe that's how God wants us to live. So it's important for us to understand that nothing has changed in your Bible by what's happening in the Middle East. Let me remind you of what Jude said in Jude 3. He said this, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude says nearly 2,000 years ago, hey, the faith was once and for all delivered to the saints. So it's important for us That if we say, well, how am I supposed to live with all that's going on today? Go back to the Bible. Just continue obeying what you know. This is what Jesus, the instruction Jesus gave in Matthew 6, verses 33 through 34. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What am I supposed to do today with all that's going on? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And here's what he says. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What else can you do? Well, you already have the greatest commandments. The greatest commandments. You are called as a believer, I am called as a believer, to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love my neighbor as myself. That hasn't changed. That's still what you're called to. You have Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven, which says, be anxious for nothing, 
What's happening in the Middle East is included in the nothing. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Furthermore, you're instructed to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. On your own, you can read Psalm 122. Psalm 122 says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You can do that. You, you can remember, nextly, that all human beings are made in God's image. That, and so this is, this is the, one of the great tragedies of all these things. Whenever there's war, whenever there's conflict, people are being killed on both sides. And all those people, every single person who's killed is still a person made in God's image. We're told that in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And, and so remember that. Remember that when you pray through these situations, it, is that these are still people in need of salvation. Remember also that God is willing to save anyone who comes to him through Jesus. And that all who refuse Jesus will be lost. It's a tragedy. So what's happening over there is absolutely tragic. It's absolutely unjust. But, but the, the ultimate tragedy is that so many people over there are dying and they're going to hell. That, that is a, that's a huge tragedy. That's something for us to pray for. Now, another thing I want to encourage you to, and again, maybe I'm, I'm getting into meddling, but you guys have free, freedom to refuse me. I encourage you to stop listening to the reports of unbelievers. I encourage you to stop listening to the reports of unbelievers. Because when unbelievers tell you what's going to happen next and what you should be focused on and what you should think about it, they don't have the proper perspective. They have not surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, so they don't see life as it actually is. So when you go to them to look for their insight, their wisdom on these things, you're you're going to the wrong source. Now, with that said... I encourage you to be Bereans when listening to the reports of believers. So when you listen to the reports from believers, you listen to special sermons from believers, don't just take it because they're believers. Listen to them, but also compare it with the scriptures. Same thing I ask you to do for me, I'm asking you to do for them. And then also, I just want to let you know, my personal take on this I'm a futurist. I believe, the most, I believe the book of Revelation from 4 to 22 is still future. I believe that God is going to bring a great revival to the Israelites during the tribulation period. I believe there's going to be two witnesses. I believe there's going to be 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe who God is going to use to bring people to revival. I believe that God still has promises to fulfill to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he'll do that in the tribulation period and in the millennial kingdom. I believe all of that. I just can't stand here and tell you that's about to happen because I don't know. And the thing is, you don't know either. So we haven't been called to know that. In fact, in the book of Acts, shortly before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, it's not for you to know times and seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. He says, what you need to do as you need to wait in Jerusalem until the giving of the Spirit, and then you need to go out into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth preaching the gospel. And so, so may, I, may I humbly encourage you and me that wherever you're living right now is your Jerusalem. It's your place to minister. It's your place to serve that God. I, I would encourage each of us to engage in the fight that the Lord has called us to fight, that good fight of faith. I would encourage you to, on your own, read and pray through Ephesians chapter 6. 
verses 10 through 20, reminding yourself to put on the armor of God, reminding yourself that the battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age. Remember that. Understand there's a spiritual battle behind it. I would encourage you to remember Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two, that says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Notice it doesn't say looking unto the news. It doesn't say looking unto this. It says looking unto Jesus. And so I, I want to bring all this to conclusion by turning you to or asking you to turn to a passage that has been heavy on my heart this last week. It's John, cha- John chapter 21. I want to look at verses 18 through 22. So this is, this is my conclusion I don't have my normal points that I bring at the the end. I just want to close on this because I think that this is an incredibly helpful passage for you and for I. So here's here's what I would ask you. I would ask you to, to receive this as God's word for you because I think each and every one of us can apply this to our life and I think it will help us tremendously as we seek to be obedient to him. So John 21, 18 through 22, give you a little bit of context. Um, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's met his disciples out there on the beach. He's restored Peter to ministry. And then he's going to talk to Peter about his end. He's, Jesus is going to prophesy the end of Peter's life, his martyrdom. So we pick up the story, John 21, verse 18. Jesus says this to Peter. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. In other words, we know Peter right? Peter's a guy who's kind of done his own thing. He's, he's spoken his mind. He's kind of been a man of action, chopping off ears, doing that kind of stuff. And says, but the day is coming. Notice what he says. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. Now, church history tells us that Peter and his wife were arrested, that Peter's wife was tortured in front of him, trying to get Peter to recant. Peter encouraged her to keep the faith. She died as a martyr, and then Peter was gonna be crucified. But because he felt unworthy of dying in the same manner as his Lord, he has to be crucified upside down. And and so this is is what was gonna happen to Peter. But please understand, at this moment, Peter hasn't been baptized with the Holy Spirit yet. None of those things. And so so, so Peter's kind of, it's, it's hard to hear. Right? It's hard to hear. Peter understands that, that he's going to die in, this, in this, this difficult way. And so notice what Jesus says there at the end of verse 19. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. That's God's word for you. That's God's word for me. That's what he would look. Jesus looks in our eyes through the word of God and says, follow me. Now, notice what happens next though. Then Peter, verse 20, turning around. There's where the problem started. Jesus spoke to him. Jesus said, follow me. What does Peter immediately do? He turns from Jesus. He turns around and saw, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, and so that's the apostle John, following, who had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Okay. Peter gets his eyes off the Lord and he asks about John. And this is a struggle for you and I. This is our struggle. 
God has already given us a job. God has already called us to these things. And we want to turn from him and say, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about going over there? And how come this is happening? And all of those things. But notice how Jesus responds. Verse 22, but Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. I, I believe with all my heart, as much as I believed anything in my life, that is God's word for us. We live in, a, in an age of distraction, of a lay, age of, fa- uh, of feigned omniscience that, oh, I just see, and, and if I see all these things, I gotta do something about that. And, and you know what? Pray and do those things that, I, that, that I've encouraged you to do if you feel led to do so, but, but if, if you're gonna take one thing away from this message, if you're gonna take one thing away from anything I've ever taught you in this church, it's this, please, Just put your eyes on Jesus and follow him. That's what he's called you to. Don't allow this world to distract you about all these things that you and I have absolutely no control over. But what you do have control over is following Jesus. You can follow him. So I exhort you to do that today. Let's pray.